This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts Podcast with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, he got his start writing on telenovas. Welcome, Dan Bukatinsky. Hi, everyone. My guest today is actor, writer, and producer Dan Bukatinsky. Dan may be best known for his role as James Novak in the Shonda Rhimes drama series Scandal, for which he won an Emmy Award, but he is a prolific contributor to basically every aspect of the entertainment industry. With his producing partner and Friends star Lisa Kudrow, Dan has created, starred in, and produced The Comeback and Web Therapy for HBO. The latter was directed by Dan's real-life husband, Don Roos. They also produced the reality shows It Got Better and Who Do You Think You Are? He was the writer, producer, and star of the romantic comedy All Over the Guy. He has starred on Marry Me, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Weeds, Friends, NYPD Blue, that 80s show, Frasier, Will and Grace, as well as Grey's Anatomy. He also wrote the book, Does This Baby Make Me Look Straight? Confessions of a Gray Dad, which has been optioned for television. He's also going to star in the upcoming 24 Legacy. There's a revival of Gilmore Girls, apparently. He's on that, too. And he's also committed to numerous not-for-profit organizations, all of which strive to make the world a better place. Welcome, Dan Bukatinsky. Thank you. Thank you. It is an honor to read your resume. <laughs> well, that was, that was, uh, it felt padded. Uh, but if you, you know, some of those roles on some of those shows were, uh, you know, less than. So it's impressive. like when you first start acting and yeah. you're like, I was on yeah, All was My on... Children in that I watched it <laughs> every day. I was on Guiding Light, which I was. <laughs> and, you know, in the days of the under fives. Yes. Oh, boy. But yes. remember, do you remember getting your first under five? Yes. Yes. I was a waiter in New York right out of college. And I, one of our regular customers was this guy, Jimmy Bohr. And he was known. I knew him through the, the grapevine. People yes. talked about Jimmy Bohr because he was the casting director for A Guiding Light. So when he would come in to 
the restaurant, it was like, oh my God, Jimmy Bohr is in your section. Oh my God. And all of us actors. Let me get Mac for men and very <laughs> so, quickly. <laughs> but I mean, the, you know, in hindsight, the guy who casts the under fives yes. on a show, you know, not that high up in the food chain, but no. had been on the show for a long time and was sort of legendary as the guy who casts Guiding Light. And it, it was like so important to me. I can't explain it to you. It was like the most important thing that I waited, that I wait on him. And afterwards, I think I sent a letter. Jimmy, I was your waiter last night. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. But obviously, I would welcome any opportunity. How many times have I written that letter? Enclosed, please find, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he called me. And I got to play, do an under five on Guiding Light. So for listeners, under five literally means what it sounds like, which is five lines or less. And it was less. And it was less. <laughs> it could be, but still, it could be one I word. I specialized on that. It meant you're not an extra. I lived in this basement apartment in the, in the village okay. on Morton Street. It was literally like Laverne and Shirley. You know, like my apartment was the basement of you someone's townhouse. <laughs> totally. Like looked out the window and it was just feet. And homeless people who used to take craps in my vestibule. Really fun and inspiring stuff. And I would pace in that apartment just trying to figure out exactly. It's what it felt like. How am I going to do this? How am I today? How am I going to, what am I going to, I don't know where I got that kind of crazy, obsessive restlessness, but I would walk up and down this neighborhood and slide slide my picture and resume under the door of every casting director in every agency, face up. People said, don't put it in an envelope. Somebody had this idea that if you did it face up, that even if they were going to throw your picture out, they would see your face before they threw it out. It would hurt them a little bit. Possibly. And at least in the one in a million chance that they were looking for the guy who sort of looked like you, they'd be like, look, I was about to throw this out. Yeah. But this guy with the big Jufro might be right. Wait, did you just say they're doing Yentl in Stockbridge, Matt? Hang on. Uh, hold on. I could I <laughs> could possibly play. I could maybe do. I could say oh, one line in. Do you sing? Oh, my God. I do. I okay. do. You could have. I, I could have. I certainly was on the path at that time to want desperately to do, you know, Broadway. But based on how you've been able to literally maybe do every single other thing in entertainment, short of like a Vegas show act although maybe you did maybe you did don't know don't that's know that's a funny story we don't know that's not for right now <laughs> that's, that's another... a little known fact by the way well let's go back you you're a city kid you grew up here in new york until i was 8 so i lived on the upper west side and my parents were immigrants from argentina argentinian jews argentinian jews of which there is a huge upper west side community of argentinian jews i did not know that yes well you left i left before they <laughs> all like, followed they were like we came <laughs> for the bukajinskis where they go <laughs> all right well we'll stay <laughs> so it was this early 60s and they moved from argentina my mom was in her 20s didn't speak any english was pregnant with my sister and they lived on West End Avenue, and then they moved on to Amsterdam Avenue, and I was a city kid. And then um, around 73, 4, I was 8 or 9, right. we moved to Westchester. Okay. And I lived in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful part of New York, but not for a city kid who was non-athletic. Right. Which is code for gay. Is that- um, but didn't know it yet. Yeah. And so it was a tough, you know, a tough 10 years. Would you say that's true? Would you say you didn't know it yet or you couldn't or there wasn't a vocabulary for it? 
There was. I feared it like the plague. Mm-hmm. So I think if I if it was if it ever emerged, I would be like, well, that cannot be. So I'll just push that out of my brain, and then it would emerge, and I would push it out of my brain, and it would emerge, and all throughout my growing up. Up um, until. Up until I don't, you know, a long time. This morning when I was with my husband and we Little were talking about fact. the kids, I was like, "Honey, I'm gay." Honey, I think that the whole thing that I'm gay for pay and I think I may really be gay is what I said to him. That must and have made him happy though. It did. He was so relieved. Fake it till you so make it. we could finally, finally have sex. Um, oh, yeah. I hate to segue so quickly. No, that's okay. I love your book so much. Thank you. It's so impressive because you are able to, with this book, ride the line of being highly personal but never embarrassing anyone in it. I felt like if it wasn't hard to write, it probably What's isn't worth writing. So I really made myself say things that I it would, in a million years, I never imagined I'd be able to put in print. Right. And that was kind of the, I, that was kind of the point. Right. How else to connect to other people who themselves are probably feeling the same way. If it's just sort of the normal run of the mill, right. superficial story or right. Fear or my own neurosis about how I parent and all that stuff. If I couldn't just put it on, put it all out there, right. I shouldn't do it. The only thing you need to do now that Eliza can read is just get white out just for the very first sentence of the book. I know. Because other than that, I know. you're golden. Well, luckily. Can you just tear out the first page the, of every. Both of my kids are not great readers. <laughs> That's so lucky again, it's lucky. So lucky. So lucky. So, you know, she may never, she may wait till it's on, it, well, it's, it is an audible book, but I don't think right. she's, gonna, she's not going to wait till it's an voice. edible book. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then she'll eat it. It's perfect. Fine. It's perfect. All right. Well, readers, you'll now have to go buy the book to see what the first sentence is because it's a good one. Okay, so you went to Vassar where Lisa Kudrow also went. Correct. And I wasn't a drama major. I was sort of American history and American culture. I created my own major studying, believe it or not, studying television. I wrote a thesis my senior year about the the American family and how it's portrayed on television. And ironically, you know, I went into that and wound up writing comedies, for right. family comedies right. and being in them. And, you know, it was an area of interest. In and portraying characters in adult that completely represent a whole other kind of family life. I mean, scandal as an example among others. In a million years, would I have imagined winding up doing that? I mean, what what happened with Scandal, that was the, the opportunity to play a character like that, that Shonda wanted to be no holds barred and, and just happened to be the the husband of the chief of staff. I mean, and right. treated as though I, I remember my first episode of Scandal and the way in which she revealed to the audience a reality that the characters clearly already were living, which right. I thought was so clever. Right. There was no coming out or there was no, te- you know, the chief of staff played by Jeff Perry wasn't telling his cabinet or the people he worked with, by the way, I'm gay. It's like, this is a man who's been out for a long time. They know who I am. Only the audience is now being caught up to speed. Right. And by the way, the actor, Jeff Perry, right. did not know he was signing on to play a gay character. It happened you know, episodes in Mm -hmm. and his wife was the casting director and she was reading the script and she's like, oh my God, Jeff. I know you don't like to know what happens. I I think I may have to tell you in this particular instance, I think I might have to prep you for this. Mm -hmm. So I open the door and, you know, I say to Kara, literally the door opens and I'm like, on a Sunday, really, Olivia, you you know, don't, 
you know you're not supposed to come to the house on a Sunday. It's right. like it's it's our day. And we meet you. And you meet this character who's just speaking as though he and Olivia have spent many times together and he's reminding her the rule is no work on the weekends. And you're instantly thrust into the most sort of universal kind of relatable marriage. That could be anybody telling someone from work, like, are you really going to come here on a Sunday? Right. It was a very, I thought, kind of a subversive way of bringing a gay relationship and the chief of staff, no less. Yeah. And I don't think at that point they even had any idea that it was going to go 30 episodes, three seasons. It it changed my life. And paid Com- for that shirt you're wearing right now. Mm. As it, maybe not that one. I think I took it, that from wardrobe. It literally paid for it because yes. I took it from wardrobe. Yes. I think that the scenes between you and Jeff Perry when there's conflict are, t- are, are truly some of the most well-acted scenes on television. They feel like plays. Yeah. We were very lucky. We felt very lucky. Jeff and I both, when, when we would get some of these scripts, in the middle of these scripts would be these little one-acts that we would get to play. And I think Shonda really enjoyed writing and was challenged by writing. And the, and the rest of the writing staff, who, who were all amazing, these sort of two-hander scenes that were both a love story and a, f- a quest to have children and a negotiating careers and ambition and the interplay between political influence of the by the press and yeah. the use of the press in a marriage. I mean, there's a million things that were, there was a million things going on. And I, I you know, I will never get to do, I'll get to do lots of different things. I'm feel very lucky about that. Mm. But that particular thing was what it was. Yeah. And I can't imagine it ever being like that again. Yeah. Now, Shonda, I think is on record as having adopted mm-hmm. her Two of her Two, three kids. Right. Yeah. And your children are adopted. Correct. And in fact, Shonda and I bonded. Is that how you... Okay. We did. I mean, I guess I was a guest star on Grey's Anatomy, and she and I had not quite met at the time, but she hired me to play this part. Right. And then a couple of years later, I auditioned to play two different roles on Scandal. And I had to read my book when it was in galleys, and she she blurbed on it. That's nice. Which was really nice, because yeah. we didn't know each other that well. But so for people out there auditioning and trying really hard, starting with an under five, and then moving on to episodic work, the real way to get a job in Hollywood is adopt a baby. Yeah. Write a book about it. Write a book about it. And then find really high-powered people who be like, oh. Who also adopted. Oh, my God. We're the same. Yeah. And that's all you need to do. But she said to me at her house, I guess they were screening the pilot of, of Scandal. And I was invited because right. I had done two episodes that, of that short first season. And she said to me, I want to tell you that when I read your book, you said that you were inspired by Dan Savage's book, The Kid. Yeah. And so was I. And this connective tissue between Shonda a straight African-American woman, single mom, and this gay married guy had having this commonality like that that. was so lovely. And it really made us friends. And it certainly didn't hurt the fact and how well she knew me didn't hurt how they wrote the character. At some point, you became a great writer, certainly a great comedic writer. The comeback truly was one of my, I mean, you know, I I used to watch the, my connection to reality television goes way far back. When mm-hmm. is I watched The Loud 
family, yeah. That, yeah. that dog. I love that. And then it was resurrected, so sure. people got to see it again. I started out working with Robert Altman on one of the first HBO series called Tanner 88, mm-hmm. where we ran a fictional candidate, and it was sort of the beginning of the blurred lines. It was a fictional show written by Gary Trudeau, yeah. but we were interacting with all the real people. And it was sort of an introduction of blurring the lines between real people and actors. All that being said, when the comeback came on, it was the early days of reality television. It was. I don't know that were I the think, housewives on. No, yet? there were no housewives. It was Survivor. It was um, The Amazing Race. It was mostly shows like that where people were, you know, manipulated into circumstances. Okay. Um, the only show that ha- that was on, because I remember talking to Lisa about it, she, right. had, she had played this character that we later called Valerie Cherish in, um, in The Groundlings. Yeah. And we were talking about this show that Anna Nicole Smith, if, I don't know if you remember this, on E!, the early days of E! And we would watch it. It was a train wreck. And I remember Lisa and I being in our offices at Warner Brothers, first year of our company. And she was like, wouldn't it be great if we did, like, if I did that character, a fictional character, but was being followed around by cameras? She pitched it to Michael Patrick King. Mm -hmm. And the two of them wrote that pilot together. I didn't write it. I I, I produced it with her. Okay. But the two of them found a way of working together. That And Michael, you know, began as a Mm stand-up and did tons of improv in his own life. And the manner that the two of them collaborated to write that pilot of the comeback was improv and Lisa playing that character and what if. Obviously, Lisa's a fancy star and Michael Patrick King is a fancy star. I felt like everyone was so amazing on it because they cast great actors. There was no did, I mean, star. I remember the casting process. We saw a lot of people for every role. And you cast and the best people. We cast great people. We cast the best people. We tested some people at HBO. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Chris Albrecht was the head of HBO mm-hmm. at the time. It was before Housewives. So it was, a, and little did we know that writing this show and the way Lisa is vulnerable Inadvertently, I don't think we ever predicted that people would find it as sort of uncomfortable and hard to watch as they did. So how did you and Lisa decide to create a company together? How did you segue from acting to writing and producing? I wasn't working. I wasn't getting jobs. I have to say, like, you were pacing again in that downstairs apartment on Morton Street. I'm really an example of somebody who either doesn't take no for an answer, is an idiot, well, like where does a this true come from? idiot. Where does it come from? Your Argentinian blood? Like, what is that? You can't, like, I've, no, it's a really I've good survived I don't know what dictatorships. To, I don't know, I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. I don't know how, I don't know where it came from, this like absolute tenacity. Like, I would not accept, I would not accept were you uh, a confident kid? No, absolutely not. I'm not confident as I'm talking to you right now. I, I, I okay? just you need did anything? not. I feel so insecure right now. I want to. St- Nothing a beta blocker can't help. <laughs> You're exactly right. <laughs> no, I don't even know where that came from. I, I, for some reason, part of it is that I, I was pretty bullied as a kid, and I think a part of me believed. And I wasn't. I didn't grow up in a religious household. I never really talked about this before. But okay. I, I created my own relationship with what I believed God to be, and I could not believe. This is going to sound so hokey, but I could not believe that God would have that whatever this private relationship I had with whatever higher power was in my mind, God. I couldn't believe that He didn't have my back. Oh. 
And I was like, there's got to be a day. There's got to be a day where all of this was worth it. Hmm. And I think that the tenacity was like this, wait a minute, if this is going to be a kick in the head and this is going to be a kick in the head and this is going to be a kick in the head, it's not going to happen over here and it's not going to happen over here. Wait a minute. I I have to believe that it's got to be somewhere. I've got to find it. I can't can't just give up. I mean, I've never quit anything. And uh, I don't know where that's from, and I've been in a lot of therapy to figure it out because I've put yeah. myself through many uncomfortable circumstances that any normal, rational would be adult like, I'm would out. Be, yeah, right. guess what? Take care of yourself. Yeah, step out. You're with an abusive. There's no, no, there's win. no win here. I had a yeah. freshman year roommate at Vassar who made me uncomfortable, and I forced myself to stay with him for an entire year because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And right. you know, it would have been totally appropriate to change roommates. Right. That that that. There's something about that that also served me. And I was not, I did not have the career that I dreamt about. Studied every playbill, went to every play, hung out under the marquees of every Broadway theater. I knew exactly what kind of actor I wanted to be. And it wasn't happening. It was heartbreaking. And to move to Los Angeles after I took a, a, I had written a sketch show that I was performing in the clubs. It was a funny comedy sketch show that I wrote out of necessity. If right. I can't get into a play, I'm going to write a play. Right. I'm not in A Few Good Men. I'm no. the only one not exactly. in A Few Good Men. But it's but so that funny that you play. should mention A Few Good Men because yeah. I would wait backstage at A Few Good Men and I would hand my picture and resume to the stage manager. I was told, like, if you're looking for replacements, I'm the guy. And it was Josh Molina whose part yeah. I wanted. Ironically, I told him years later as yeah. we were on Scandal together. But I had such a strong connection to the life I wanted and the life that I was having. Then I went to L.A. and I did my sketch show and um, got some opportunities from doing the sketch show. But still, and I had an agent at that point. You know, I was got a TV job playing a valet on the Wonder Years, and then I had a line on Party of Five and a line, and you know, it was a line mm-hmm. here and a line there under five, and. So writing, what was the break? What was the first You know, break? meeting my husband, Don, who was a screenwriter who never wanted to be with an actor right. and never really thought acting was was the way to go for anybody, especially if they had talent as a writer. He was really pushing me. He's like, you've got to write. You could wake up every day and write. You cannot wake up every day and act. And he's like, you know, you're working so hard, but you're not working smart. I will never forget him saying that to me. I know exactly where we were when he said it. It's okay to be someone who works incredibly hard which I am, but you're not working smart right. and you can work hard, you know, like a, like a gerbil on a wheel, but you're not moving anywhere. You're not going anywhere. So did that, did your movie come out of that, the film that you wrote? I started writing uh, a play and Don was, dire- his directing career was taking off mm-hmm. and there was a role in a movie that he wrote that I wanted more than anything in the world. And it was really hard for us, our relationship. He was in a position where he didn't feel confident to just cast his boyfriend in right. this part, and I was devastated. And right around that time, I adapted this play that I had been performing in Los Angeles into my film. Okay. I turned it from a, a straight romantic comedy into a gay romantic comedy. Right. As it turns out, for me to have gotten a movie, star in my own movie that I had written, as opposed to have, having played a supporting role in a movie that Don, that was my husband's movie. Right. Best thing it it that was ever the happened. best thing that ever happened to me. After having having made my own film, and as a result of it, as a result of it, and I will never forget it. I thought that that movie, when it came out in theaters, was going to get me a gap ad. Right. At that time, that, that was, was the goal. That was the goal. Yeah. I managed to sell to ABC a half hour sitcom script 
based very loosely based on my movie all over the guy before it even came out and from that point on and i'm not kidding for every single year since then for the last i'd say 16 years i've been luckily lucky enough to be able to write a pilot none of them have gone to tell to, to become television series right. which has have a, any of them been made as yes, pilots a few of them have been made as pilots right. uh, but many of them have not and it's allowed me to it has sort of financed my being able to have an acting career, even as sporadic as it was. But around that time, Lisa was about to end Friends, and she wanted to start a company. And she sort of watched how, I guess at that time, I was very tenacious. Right. And I was had made my own movie, was writing two pilots a year. And she was thinking, I want to... I want to hitch my wagon Exactly. Like and this. each of our agents told us, you don't want to hitch your wagon to some sitcom star. She doesn't... She doesn't you don't need Where's her. Where's it going to go? Right. And her agents were like, who's this guy? You don't right. need some schmo. You need an ex-network um, right. executive. Exec. Yeah. And both of us looked at each other and were like, neither one of us want to listen to and our let's agents. Have fun. And let's, let's have just fun. do it as two creative people who want to produce TV. So you would become friends somehow. We became friends because of- Don hired Lisa to be in The Opposite of Sex, this amazing right. film. I love that movie. She walked onto the set, which was 10 years after I graduated Vassar, and we both realized that we had been at Vassar for two years together and had never crossed paths. You're like, the Jocelyn dorm? I know the Jocelyn totally. dorm. Like, you were at Davison? I mean, <laughs> I must have passed you a thousand times. She was a bio major in the in the biology building, and I was a big drama-rama. And, right. you know, the closest I came to that biology building was that I was in a dance troupe that choreographed a dance on the steps of the biology building. It was beshared. And she was, was like, oh, I remember that dance. It was so annoying. I was trying to study, and you guys were dancing. So there's two things that have come out of your company, as far as I can tell. Hilarious, hilarious programming. And Thank then you. really meaningful web therapy and the comeback or capturing a moment in our culture, right, yes. and how we live, but in, in a fictionalized way. And then, you know, I remember the It Gets Better videos sure. that came yeah. out and just just sitting there as, you know, one would load right after the other, just bawling. Yeah. Well, Dan, be... we met Dan, Lisa and I met Dan Savage at a, either a, at one of the Emmys or something. And mm-hmm. we all, we talked about wanting to collaborate together and we got together and we thought, and Lisa and I and Don at that point had uh, wanted to bring Who Do You Think You Are, this genealogical documentary series to America. And we got to produce it here, which we're still doing. And something about taking the It Gets Better videos and the idea of historical context mm-hmm. and putting it together is what created It Got Better, which is this documentary sort of short form documentary series, which we've now done three seasons of. And like Who Do You Think You Are, it's it's sort of prominent people, you know, LGBT actors, musicians, athletes. We just did Sir Ian McKellen this year talking about that moment when it didn't feel like it whatever obstacle was surmountable and and how they got through it mm-hmm. because the it get the it gets better videos are amazing but for a 7th grader listening to them being told that it gets better eventually yeah. doesn't quite connect you to that moment as a child when it also felt like how how do i not get stuffed in a locker tomorrow mm-hmm. and when you hear some of your heroes say i remember i got stuffed in a locker i got stuffed in a locker and the next day I got out and I found this teacher who changed my life. It's like, oh, maybe if I find a teacher, they might be able to change my life. So I really wanted to connect back to their childhood and also put a timeline of history in there so that you know, oh, Jane Lynch was born in 
around D.C. at this time. Yeah. And at this time, this is where we were in, in the context of the civil rights movement. So a historical context and a personal story was important to me. And it's what made these It Got Better videos what they have become. And we're very proud of them. Well, it must feel amazing to be able to make entertainment and potentially life-changing moments for people to see that they're not alone. Yeah. And I am very conflicted about the world of the Internet. So much of, you know, I laughed at your book when you're like, in Poppy's car, they get to be on the iPad. (sighs) I mean, there's just hours and hours of conversations with my husband and I about. And the truth is he and I both love TV so much. And the minute those kids are in bed, we're like, okay, let's get it. Me too. Me too. (laughs) Let's watch. Don and I fight endlessly about it. All the time as a kid as well. Me too. So I don't I watched, really have the answer. Oh, no, I'm such a hypocrite. I mean, here's the thing. I, Don and I d- d- see, d- see eye to eye almost never about the way we parent, which is extremely frustrating. Sexy, right? Yeah, really sexy. Uh-huh. And yet, you know, and I'm very big on these on my kids not spending every waking moment with their face in an iPad, which they're dying to do. They yeah. love Minecraft more than anything in the world, and it's a very creative game. And they maybe they'll become architects one day because they're building these mm-hmm. worlds. I'm a, I'm a real stickler. I'm a real Nazi about it. The irony is what when I was a kid, I'd get up before anybody else at 6 a.m. and turn on the TV instantly. And, you know, it's how I learned how and to play the spoons. Yeah. Right. And come home from school and right. watch Another World and yeah. then reruns of I Dream of Jeannie. Totally. I wasn't reading books. And I'm, and I'm the parent who's now telling my kids not to do what I did. So a little bit of a hypocrite I am. Yeah, as much as I am also creating digital content now and entertainment, I also look at the future and look at my kids in particular, and I'm really nervous about their ability to have social skills and communicative skills and be able to say, tell a story or speak their truth or have an emotional vocabulary. And maybe they won't need it. Maybe they can just dictate into Siri and have Siri tell them how they're supposed to or feel. Just, but. Well, I know that I do take great solace in the fact, as you just described, there are my entire like soundtrack still commercials from my yeah. childhood. You know, I'll be walking down the street and it's like J-E-L-L-O. Like, right? Yeah. That's all part of my... That's my little known fact. Yeah. If I, I'm just hearing J-E-L-L-O all that. the time. <laughs> anyway, anyway, but I do think that there is hope that that even with all the watching we did and all of the watching they're doing, which yeah. is a different kind of difference, is they're happening upon content that's intense and scary. Yeah. That that to me is the real thing. You know, on YouTube it's like it keeps circling. My son was like Lego movie, and suddenly it's like Lego characters, but there's voiceovers of like, oh, yeah. hey, fucking, man. like it gets into this, and and Kayla was like, mommy, I, yeah. why is Batman asking Robin to come sleep over? I was like, I don't, uh, I don't I th- know. I don't know, honey. He likes him. Can I see that YouTube video? <laughs> right. Number so seventeen in your line of the one. What's happening? I don't, on my so way here, the on the part. train, on my way here with my son, he was telling me how he had just watched a YouTube video where it was a Minecraft video or something. Um, I don't know, but somebody was they were saying bad words mm-hmm. all through it, and I was like, I thought we had all the parental controls on our iPads, but right. they're on these loops on YouTube videos, and these guys something seeps through, and grown-ups' faces come up sometimes in the corner and talk you through the. Minecraft that they're doing. And I'm like, who's that strange man who's looking at and talking to my kid? Uncle Ron. I know. I'm not, none of this makes me comfortable. <laughs> I know. But it's it's on. It's on. It's full and, on. And I can't control it. But and it's, what you are doing, and I can say this with like complete confidence, is loving your kids yes. with such crazy 
outrageous, abundant generosity and compassion. It's like I see it in how you talk about them. I saw it in how you write about them. I see it in how you just are in the world. And at the end of the day, not to be Pollyanna because I am not. That's all you can do. I know. And I hope so. And as much as they can't stand me and they love Poppy. They love your father, their, their, other, dad their other dad more. They love their other dad more. I do love them that, that way and I, and I play with them that way and they roll their eyes at me and they give me the finger. And no, not quite. Right. But with their eyes they do. Right. And, um, but can I just confide in you? Yeah. Don't you love one of them more? I think about this a lot. <laughs> It's like, which I'm constantly, when Dominic is out of the house, like, just, okay, daddy's not here. You can tell me right now. It's me, right? Right. It's me. And then with my kids, I'm like, wait, do I, I kind of do like one of them more sometimes. And I do feel like it is actually but a But I think thing. it's always Not moving. about love. No, I know. But in the like department, yeah. actually, you've been a total asshole. Right. And your sister hasn't. Right. So, I think it's right? a daily it's shifting a kind and bending crazy, kind of thing. Yeah. I'll stare at one of them sometimes and I'll go, oh, my God, he's so awesome. Yeah. I can't believe it. Yeah. He's so cute and he's sitting there so quietly and, oh, my – and he's just thinking right now and I'll, I'll stare at them fascinated, one of them. Yeah. And the other one is makes me want to blow my head off. <laughs> and then the next day it's exactly the right. same thing but with the other one. That's oh, right. Yeah. It's, and I'm sure they're saying this – I'm sure they right. go through the same so thing So just all us. I'm saying is take solace. Maybe it's been yeah. poppy for the last 12 years. Correct. But there's 12 more years y- ahead. You're right. I might get them later. You might get them later. When I was starting out, there was no YouTube and there was no Google. There were a couple of books written by actors from England about the process. Mm -hmm. But I felt so isolated, and I would come out of an audition feeling like no one has ever had such a bad audition like this. Mm -hmm. I should quit. I'm all alone, and I'm just one walking humiliation. Uh, I'm going to tell you something that is, and I mean it not just to be funny. Okay. I have to say, I, I would... I would bet you that 98% of every audition I've ever had in my entire life was humiliating. And I used to have an acting teacher who used to say, you're not supposed to get the job. Like, it's it's a freak when you do. When you get the job, that wasn't, statistically, it wasn't supposed to happen. The, humili- the humiliating <laughs> thing is supposed to happen. Most of my humiliation... So you've been really successful in that way. Oh, my God. If humiliation is the goal. If humiliation is the goal, then I'm a pro at that, by the way. No, I have had some very – most of my humiliating – I'd say all of them have – well, not all of them, but the biggest ones were – a little earlier in the in, in my life in New York, and when I was convinced that I was a singer, dancer, actor, mm-hmm. so many of them were musical auditions. So many of them were because I had a really strange music teacher who would make me sing songs, who would give me audition material. Let's put it that way. Okay. Who would put audition material into my binder that was not appropriate for me for about a year was singing at every audition. <laughs> A song called Patterns from Baby, okay. a Malfi Shire musical. One of my favorites. Only years later did I learn that that was a song about menopause. Mm-hmm. So I, this Jewish 20-something who looked 17, yes. the big chocolate cake of hair uh, uh, on my head and yes. a denim jacket auditioning for some kind of 50s musical who should have been singing some doo-woppy acapella thing. Was Do you remember singing, how Patterns begins? Patterns in my life that I see every day. So that was one. And I went into an audition for, I don't remember what the musical was for, but they it was literally within, I'd say, you know, 16 bars. I, I probably got through 
11, 9, maybe 8 bars. And they were like, thank you. Mm. And it was like, God, I wonder why. I, was, I killed that. And um, so it, part of it was the bad choice of music. And then another audition I had was for an Asian soda commercial. And it was a dance audition. And I was, I fancied myself a dancer. So I went dressed to move. That was always the, the direction from the agent. It was like, come dressed to move. And I went downtown to Soho and there was a studio filled with young people dancing. And we were taught the routine. And I mean, we were taught the routine in a, in a matter of 30 seconds. Right. I'm, I don't care how good a dancer I am. I need a lot more than 30 seconds. I don't to care pick. if you're Paula Abdul. I, I, give me you 30 minutes, 30 seconds. Every dancer around me had it down pat. They were, it was as though they were in the tour, national tour of whatever that. You were that, being punked. I couldn't believe it. So we stood there. No one spoke English except the other people auditioning. So every single person there was speaking Japanese. Yes. Five cameras were rolling. I'm in a room with no less than 60 people dancing their asses off. And they went in Japanese or with an accent, five, six, seven, eight. And I stood. I couldn't <laughs> even fake it. I stood there frozen yes. while frantically 60 people danced around me in a circle. So now when you're the director, creator, producer, fancy pants on the other side of the, the long flash dance table and Jennifer Beals comes in or me yeah. auditioning, how do you take your experience and try to change the dynamic. I'm so bitter now that even if it's the reading for a TV show, I say five, six, seven, eight with a Japanese accent <laughs> just to see what they're going to do. So my having been an actor for as long as I was and unsuccessful at it made me... No, unsuccessful at auditioning. At auditioning. Yeah. And also not working in network television for most of my 30s. I've had so much success now in my 40s. It all, it's crazy. Everything I wanted to have happen in my life, for the most part, in my 20s, yeah. happened 20 years later. And it was just because I didn't quit that I happened to be around for it, thank yes. God. But but I, I approach auditions now with other actors with so much sensitivity to how much time they're outside waiting. I remember I wrote a letter to every single actor who came into my waiting room and I said, I'll never forget that letter and people have talked about it since. Yeah. I have sat in so many of these rooms. I know exactly how much time you've spent to prepare for this audition mm -hmm. and to get here and I'm going to do everything in my power to be on time. If we run late, I don't for one second want you to think that I am not aware that we're late right. and that I'm taking your time for granted. Oh, how lucky we are to have you. I just want to say personally thank you because you spend a lot of time doing a lot of wonderful work in the LGBT community, I among do. others, and it means the world to everybody. So well, thank you I, for being here today. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks. Thank you, Dan Bukatinsky. I'm Alana Levine. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to rate and review our show in the iTunes show page.